leaned over there to get my Bible, and that cupcake is sitting there, and I was tempted. <laughs> right in the moment, I thought, I could eat this in front of them. But I won't do that. Let's get it out of the way in case we didn't say it earlier. I am 57 today. Okay. Just want you to know that I'm getting younger by the, by the minute. Amen. And the Lord has them all numbered. And he knows which ones went down the drain this morning. That's quite all right. This morning I want us to work from a principle of what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 7. Turn there if you like, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Part of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said to us, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Have you found it this morning? Found the narrow gate. The, uh, the word that I want to give you that's kind of tucked in behind the word difficult when it says because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. The word that's tucked in inside there is the word confined. Not just difficult, it's confined. We think of the children of Israel, I do, and when God came, and you can turn with me if you like, Exodus chapter 33. When God gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, if you will, he's got Moses up on the mount, handing him the laws. And we know that as he's up in the mount getting the laws, which are being written by the very finger of God on stone, that's a powerful finger, writing the commandments in stone, and what's happening down below the mountain is the people are casting off restraint. They think Moses isn't coming back. They don't really care if he's coming back. They're not going to wait for him. They start grabbing all their jewelry and giving it to Aaron, the priest, and having him pound out and make a golden calf for them to worship. They cast off restraint. They, they have no boundaries. They hold themselves not in any kind of confinement at all. They give themselves over to the worship of whatever they want to. And they begin to pursue idols and out of worship. And we know the story that Charlton has, I'm sorry, Moses comes down. That was not a slip of the tongue. That was a purpose. Moses comes down from the mount and uh, in very symbolic fashion, in very honest and open fashion, he throws down the tablets and they're broken. And that shows us that the law has already been broken before it even cooled off. And we know he has to get a second set of tablets. And But he comes down and, and not only is he frustrated and and Aaron's doing the shifting thing, you know, well, it wasn't my fault the people did this. And, you know, nobody wants to take responsibility. And if you were in the tent meetings, you heard Chris Clock, the evangelist, tell us we all have to take responsibility for our own sin. We have to take responsibility for what we've done. 
Not what somebody else has done, but what we've done. In verse 31 of chapter 32, I'm just glancing down. It says, Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. And it's easy for us to point the finger and say, like with Moses, Yeah, those people do that. But we do need to take a little inventory of ourselves, don't we? What am I worshiping that is short of God? What have I put up in his place? What have I set in instead of him? What are my, what are my idols? My job, my, my family, my, uh, my um, pursuit of, of fame of some way or my pride. What is it that I'm following? What is it that I'm after? What have I put in place of God? He prays for God to forgive them. And we come to chapter 33. It says, The Lord then said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send my angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen to this next sentence. For I will not go up in your midst lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the children of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments by Mount Horeb. We're used to hearing the grace message. And I'm glad for that because I love grace. Where would I be without grace, right? I mean, all, all the, the songs, amazing grace. And, and uh, you know, I'm learning more and more why, why grace is so amazing. Your book's been written. What's so amazing about grace? I mean, we, we have camped out there, and we need the grace of God to be able to do anything we talk about today. But there is a God, the creator of the universe, who is to be feared, who is to be reverenced, who is to be held in high esteem and not messed with. Amen. And these guys messed with him. And God says, I, I still, I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you could have the land full of milk and honey. You could sleep in beds you didn't make, build houses you didn't build. You can eat out of vineyards you didn't plant. You're going to have it all, but I am not going with you. My presence is not going with you because you're disobedient, because you're not listening, because you're not obeying the commands. You broke them before I could get them on the stone. Your hearts are wicked. You're stiff-necked, and I'm not going with you. If you heard God say that to you today, would that be bad news? Yes. And so their response, as we read, when they heard this bad news, nobody put on their partying clothes anymore. Nobody put on their ornaments. They stripped themselves, which was a form of humbling. It's also just a form of self-denial, saying we probably ought to not act like we are. We probably should do something different. God says, strip your ornaments off so that I can know what to do with you. Moses takes his tent, pitches it outside the camp, calls it the tabernacle of meeting, and God comes down and meets with him in the tent. We get to verse 11 and it says, So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. 
And he, Moses, would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, did not depart from the tabernacle. Smart young man. Then Moses said to the Lord, verse 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people. Now remember, Moses gets to talk to God face to face, like a friend. Now this is a phrase. doesn't mean literal face to face. It is a, an indication of the close, intimate relationship that he had with God. Same one that Abraham had, right? The three guys appear at Abraham's tent. They're on the way to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, when it's time to leave, the two that are angels go on ahead of them. But Abraham walks side by side and talks with God. And it's test of, the Bible testifies to us that Abraham had a relationship with God that was like friend to friend, face to face. Pause. God wants this relationship with us. Okay? God wants this relationship with us. So Moses is having this face-to-face conversation, an intimate friendship, open and honest communication. Lord, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you've also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way, that I may know you, and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation is your people. Emphasis mine. And God says back to him, my presence, capital P, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And then Moses says back to God in this conversation, if your presence does not go with us, don't bring us up from here. I got like five things in my head and in my heart today that I want to hopefully get across. I don't know that I'll enumerate them, but I hope they get across. One is we've got to get tired of going places without the presence of God. We need his presence presence if if i mean if i get up tomorrow morning and say lord i got a big day planned and i'm going to get after it would it be better to stop and say lord will you be going with me today or should i just run ahead and do whatever it is i find to do lord if if you don't go up with me why should i go what is the point? Just a lot more effort, a lot more do, a lot more rush and hurry. But if your presence isn't with me, what is the good of it all? And Moses has this conversation about this whole nation. God, if you're not going to go with us, then don't send us up. Because I like to say it this way. If you're not going, I'm not going either. He continues in verse 16, For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. What makes Christians different than every other people group on the earth? 
It should be his presence, not a title. When we come to Christ, we don't just get a badge or a headband or a wristband or a, you know, a tattoo or something that says we're Christians and that makes us stand out. The thing that makes us stand out is his presence. If he is with us, right? And when he's with us, we do oddball things like love each other. Love one another. We demonstrate that he is in us and his presence is with us. And we, we do abnormal things like forgive people. We let others go first. And we look for others' needs to be met before our own. We, the whole thing turns upside down. And Jesus said that the world will know you're my disciples by your love one for another. You know, the one another scriptures are pretty powerful. More than 35 in the New Testament one another scriptures. There's no way to accomplish your Christianity alone. You have to do it with other people. And when you go, we say, oh, I love one another. Okay, I'll do that. And, uh, you know, serve one another. Okay, I'll do that. What about the forgive one another thing? Amen. You know what that means? You've got to be close enough to somebody else for them to hack you off. <laughs> Paraphrase. For them to offend you. I've offended lots of people. Some of them have told me about it. Not all of them do. They're still out there. Maybe someday we'll forgive one another. But I don't get to live by myself and isolate. I have to learn to forgive. That means I have to give you a chance to hurt me. That means intimacy and closeness. But what makes us different and why the world can know that we're Christians is because we love one another no matter what. It supersedes natural living. And his presence in our midst is what we must have. Because I can't love anybody. Unless he loves through me. I can't have grace for anybody. Unless it's his grace working through me. Would you agree with me this morning? Okay. Let's, let's finish this piece with Moses and, and the Lord. And Moses gets real bold in his face-to-face conversation. He says, please show me your glory. Wow. God says, I'll make my goodness, all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For no man shall see me and live. There's a place by me and you'll stand on the rock. So it will be when my glory passes that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock. I'll cover you with my hand while I pass by. <laughs> and then I'll take away my hand. You'll see my back but my face. You shall not see. And that's what I mentioned earlier, face-to-face. Don't think of it as so literal. God tells him with, by the end of the chapter for us, he says, if you, if you were to see me, I am a holy God. I am the creator of everything. It's all in my hand. It all works because I say it will. You're part of the creation. You can't stand up in my presence. If you saw me like you want to see me, it would be another Uzzah experience. You know what I'm talking about? Uzzah was one of those guys in the Ark of the Covenant was on that cart and was being pulled along by the oxen. It said the oxen stumbled and the cart wobbled and Uzzah was going to do God a favor. But God had said, never touch the Ark. I'm a holy God. Unholiness does not touch me. And Uzzah said, I'll help God out. He reached out to steady the Ark and he touches the Ark and the guy's a pile of ashes. In an instant. This is not drama. This is Bible. Uzzah died on the spot. The whole thing stopped right there. There was an outbreak of God. 
against man. So much so that they named the place to coincide with the incident. And the ark had to go park, as Rob taught us last week, over at Obed-Edom's house for a few months. And everything in his house was blessed because the presence of God was with him. We need the presence of God. We need his glory. The children of Israel ended up getting the Shekinah glory, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire by day and by night. That would make you kind of stand out in the world, wouldn't it? Can you imagine that today? I mean, with all the news coverage there is, they'd be on another mountain filming it from way over here because they couldn't get close to it. They'd say, there's something about those people. But we would have to have pillars of cloud and fire everywhere in the planet to stand above the believers that exist in every kindred, tribe, nation, and tongue. It's not just one nation anymore. It's his kingdom. And we can't have his kingdom without having the king over it. And if he's on the throne, then his presence is with us. I need his presence. Why was God going to disallow his presence? Why was he not going to go up with them? It's real simple. Let me give you the answer key. Disobedience. Failure to keep his commandments. Saul is, fast forward to Saul. Samuel's the last judge of Israel. And Israel's saying, we want a king. We want a king. Like all the other nations. We want a king. We want a man to reign over us. And Samuel's saying, you don't know what you're asking for. You have God over you. And all these years, he's, he's been in charge. He's been your leader. He's been your God. His presence is with you. Yeah, well, we want a king. And they reject, not Samuel. Who do they reject? They reject God. They say, we don't want God to lead us anymore. We want a king. We want to look like everybody else. Oh, what a sellout. You see what's happening? We're saying, we don't want God's presence anymore. We don't want him to be the leader of us. We want a man. We want to look like everybody else. Moses in God's conversation said, the thing that makes you different is you don't look like everybody else. You have my presence. You stand out like a sore thumb. You are my people. I don't put my presence on everybody else. I put it on you. Well, we don't want it. We want a king. Oh, we got to stop right there and just leave because it breaks my heart. How many times have I said that? By my actions, by my lifestyle. How many times have I edged God out? Said, right now I want to be the king. Right now I want something else to be king in my life. Right now I want an idol. Right now I want to pursue this without you. Please don't look. I'm going to do it. <laughs> it does get quieter sometimes. Samuel goes through a tremendous process to confirm Saul as the king. God gives him permission to do so. We find in 1 Samuel 13 and 15 a couple of incidents in this new king's life. In 1 Samuel 13, he's only been king for a couple of years. And he's got, these, he's got his troops in different places. Jonathan, his son, has a charge of, a, of part of the troops over in another city. 
And Jonathan, if you read about Jonathan, he's kind of bold. He says, you know, God can whip up on people by many or by few. Let's go up and see what we can do. He was always whipping up on the Philistines when he got a chance. And so he took a shot at the Philistines and, and actually won a little battle against them. And the news came back to his dad, Saul, and uh, he said, well, Jonathan's done this thing. And Saul said, oh, man, they got us outnumbered. We are going to be trashed. And so he calls for the whole nation of Israel to show up for the fight. Like 30,000 guys show up for the fight because we're going to have to take on the Philistines. And they got chariots and chariot men. And they got all kinds of stuff. And we don't even have anybody that can sharpen a sword. So we're in trouble. We got like two swords in the whole nation. <laughs> and the Philistines are coming. And Samuel had set a precedence when he called Saul, when he had confirmed Saul. You'll find this in, in 1 Samuel 10 and 13. Uh, he, when Saul was confirmed as king, Samuel said to him, Now go to Gilgal, and seven days from now I will come and we'll sacrifice and we'll put everything in order. Because he was the judge and he was the priest before God. He was the one to give sacrifice and offer sacrifice. And so he said, Saul, when you're on your way home from our event today, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. I won't bore you with the details. They're not boring, but I just don't want to enumerate them. And these things will happen. And when they happen, then you'll know God is with you and I'll meet you in Gilgal in a week. And so they meet and they have sacrifice. Here in, in 1 Samuel 13, we find that that same uh, occurrence is going on. They're in this, uh, this conflict. And in verse 8 of thir- chapter 13, First Samuel, it says, Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. So they're going through the same pattern again. Wait seven days and I'll come. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattered from Saul. And Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him. My version says that he might greet him. But another version says that he might bless him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul responds, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel says to Saul, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Here's the problem. Same problem Israel had. You didn't keep the commandment. You weren't obedient. You were disobedient. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. God would have established you forever. God would have made you prominent man. But you didn't keep the commandment. You stepped in. You took the role of the priest. You took the role of the judge. It didn't belong to you. You're a king. You're not a priest. You disobeyed. And now it will cost you. 
your kingdom. Two chapters later, he's supposed to follow commandments again about the king Agag and he's supposed to destroy all the stuff and all the animals and go in and defeat his enemies and God's going to be with him. Samuel comes to him. Verse 13 of chapter 15 says, Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. It would have been nice if he would have said, I learned my lesson. But that's what he's kind of saying. I've kept the commandment. Last time didn't work out so well. This time I did it. Samuel says to him, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? Why was that the question? They were all supposed to be dead. God said, Devote the city and everything in it to me, which means take every life, man, woman, child, every animal. Why am I hearing live animals if you've kept the commandment of the Lord? And Saul says, well, they brought them from the Amalekites and for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Samuel said to Saul, be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. He said, speak on. Samuel says, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And didn't the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, But but I I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and I've gone on the mission in which the Lord sent me, and I brought back Agag the king of Amalek. I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people... Oh, there's that shifting of blame. The people took of the plunder sheep and oxen and the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So Samuel said, these are classic, this is a classic passage of Scripture coming right here. Has, so Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Ooh. All for disobedience. So what are we going to do with this? Let's just keep it as a history lesson. What do you say? No, we really can't, can we? We have an awesome God. He's our Father. He loves us. But we must be obedient children. If we expect His presence, if we want His blessing, we have to be obedient. I actually put in my notes, I don't know if I erased it or not, cell leaders, you'll find out later if it's in there, but I wanted to say thank you to everyone who's tithing. This is a pitch for the offering, which we don't ever take. (laughs) It's in the wall. But I say, thank you for tithing. Now, should you be thanked for tithing? Not really. It's not really necessary, nor is it required, right? It's an obedience issue. But if I tell my kids, now my grandkids, do thus and so, and they obey, I thank them for obeying, don't I? It's a good job. 
That was very obedient. And you, I just am so proud of you. Why do I do that? So they'll continue to do it, right? So they'll be affirmed in obedience. I don't say, hey, that was required of you. You get no thanks. Right? No, I want, I want to foster more of that, don't I, as a parent? I want to have it cap it again. I say, well, I just so love it when you just do that. You know, I say, take out the trash, and oh, it vanishes. I'm so amazed by you. The first time I say, take out the trash, and it doesn't vanish, we'll have a different conversation. Right? It'll be much like this, what we're reading today. There'll be, listen, there's an awesome father, grandfather here to be obeyed. And if you don't, there are consequences. Mm-hmm. And now some of you parents I know use these words. There's going to be a consequence. I see you say it and I see your kids twinge. Consequence. I know what that means. That's a big word for trouble. <laughs> Here's our father saying to us, I want to be in your midst. I want to be in my presence. Wants to go with you. What will offend my presence? What will offend me? Your disobedience, your unwillingness to do what I've asked you to do. Now, our God, another passage in the Word of God says that His commands are not grievous. The things He asks us to do, He only asks us to do them because He knows we can, right? He knows there's maybe a point of growth or a point of battle or spiritual warfare we need to go through or something that's going to bring us to a greater maturity. And he knows us better than we do. And he says, do this. I'll give you a little example. Craig uh, Wright told me this at the tent meetings uh, two weeks ago. He said he was there. He was helping set up in chairs and getting things ready. And his head was about this big, uh, just with a headache, just huge, just pain throbbing. And so he headed for the parking lot. To uh, probably to take care of that, take something and whatever he had in his car. Maybe I'm not really sure if he was going looking for some help, some you know what ibuprofen, aspirin, or whatever. And as he came through the gate opening, which was next to where they were doing the children's ministry, the Lord spoke to him and said, "I want you to go in there and help with the kids." <laughs> Come on, you know what I'm talking about? Your head's this big, like a bowling ball, and you're thinking you want to go in a building with full of kids going. Wee, screaming or you know, running and yelling and, and he, so he stopped he said Lord I know you know the head is already pounding and, but I uh, just want to ask one more time what is it you want me to do let me just make sure this is you so I told you Craig related it this way I told you I can see this father saying I told you you didn't misunderstand me I told you go in and help with the kids so he turned he walked in the building and somebody said, oh, we're glad you're here. And they hand him a kid. And he's got this kid in his arms. And he's doing what he's doing. And he notices five minutes later his headache is gone. To obey is better than sacrifice. To hearken is better than to offer the fat of rams. God knows us and what we need when we need it. And when he says do X, we should just say okay. And make the shot, right? Take it. Go after it. Say, I'm going to be obedient. I'm just going to obey. I don't have to understand why or how or if I can or can't finish the job. God knows. And if I'm obedient, the Bible says the obedient will eat the good of the land. The obedient will be cared for by the presence and power of God. He will never let us down. He'll go with us. And even if we fail, what great company we'll be in when he's there with us. 
pat us on the back and say, nobody fails like you do. You're good at it. I love it when you do this because we always come up growing. Am I a little out of order there? Remember when I coached Little League, Jaden's team? Uh, I wasn't the coach, actually. I was just the team screamer. <laughs> and I was the dad, snack guy or whatever. Every now and then they'd let me on the field, you know. And we'd be in the dugout before the game. The first year, his team uh, took first place in the Bronco division. I got a nice hat out of the deal, first place and all that. Next year, all the older kids graduated to the upper league, and we got a new batch from the lower guys, and we lost every game. I mean, we were we were last place big time all year. And I used to be in the dugout for the games. I said, come on, guys, we're going to go out and lose again today. <laughs> I said, man, nobody. You know, in baseball, somebody has to lose. I said, man, we were good at it. Come on. Come on, put your hands in. Let's go. I mean, we're going to take the field, and we're going to do our best, and we're probably going to lose. But we're going to lose trying. We're going to have a good time with our Yeah. And off they go into the field. And the coach and the manager just shaking their heads going, oh, How does he do that? Even in our failures, God is with us if he asked us to go. And it isn't about winning or losing. It's about obedience and having his presence. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, we find what's called the great Shema, the greatest commandment. Now, this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments of the Lord your God has commanded to teach you that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, you and your son and your grandson, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord God of your fathers has promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. Talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What is the very most important thing we can do ever is to be obedient to the Lord, is to follow his ways, to be obedient to his commands, which are not grievous, and to make sure that no matter what our field of work, expertise, retirement, whatever we're doing, we are doing full on for God. And he is primary. We got to have his presence. We must have his presence in everything we do. We must remain distinctly different than those around us because of his presence upon us. We need to respond differently, reactively, and we need to lead our homes differently. Our homes, cell leaders, like a little home, your lighthouse, family. Let's lead it differently so that the presence of God is there. Because without that, it's just another meeting. It's just another night out. It's just another figuring out how to do the child care and work at it. But if Jesus is there and his glory might just shine over the top of your house in your neighborhood and the neighborhoods begin to say, wow, what's something different about over there? People, I see cars pull up and everybody's smiling. 
they must have a drug thing going on over there. <laughs> What's going on over there? Whatever it is, we need to get us some of that. Just a couple chapters over, Deuteronomy 10. I don't know if your Bible says this, but above verse 12 in mind, Deuteronomy 10 verse 12 says, The essence of the law. Right, because we're talking about Old Testament today a little bit here. Well, a lot. Commandments, keep the commandments. Christians under grace and having the Lord Jesus as their Savior want to ask, well, what are the commandments now? Are they different? Well, maybe we'll get to that answer in a moment. But here in chapter 10, verse 12, the essence of the law. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? To walk in all his ways and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. It's a question. It's hard to read as a question, but there is a question mark at the end of that. What does the Lord require of you? But these things. If you can find it over in Micah. Page 1325 (laughs) for some of us. After Jonah, before Nahum, in there squeezed in Micah, he's coming. Chapter 6, hear now what the Lord says. Now my my title here, and you, you get some benefit from these titles. As God pleads with Israel, hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let your hills, let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? Interesting, if, we could, if I could have read this more accurately, this is their response. God's saying, how have I wearied you? Talk to me. What's the deal? How have I contended? I'm going to contend with you. You're not, we're not getting along here. Their response is, well, what could make you happy? I mean, should, it be, should I give 10,000 rams? Should I all the sacrifices I get? Should I give my own children? Is that going to make you happy? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's it. Why won't you walk with me? 
do you want from us? I've already told you. Just do justly. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. All your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not about keeping the list. If he gives you a command, be obedient. Don't disobey. Don't ignore his call. His commandments are not grievous. If you want his presence, we need to understand what the fear of God is. Anybody want to take a lesson in the fear of God? You know, we're a little hesitant, aren't we? Because we tend to think that there's sort of fire and stuff involved. Or lightning bolts. Or chastisement or something of that nature. Some some negative connotation. No, the fear of the Lord is a delight. When the prophecy in Isaiah talked about Jesus, it said that the fear of the Lord was his treasure. This... We, we've tended to phrase it this way most often. Commentaries, preachers, teachers, uh, most often fashion the answer, what is the fear of the Lord this way? They say it is the awesome reverence for God. We can tend to wrap our hands around that. Have you ever been in a room where a dignitary showed up but you weren't aware of it yet? Maybe you can picture it in your mind. You're there just having lunch and a bunch of people having a banquet or whatever. And in comes the dignitary, whatever that person's title or role was. And you're, you're just shoving the fork in your mouth and you got a mouthful of, you know, enchilada or whatever. And, and somebody says, he's here. And you, you kind of gulp. What do I do? Do I chew? Do I swallow? Do I stand? Do I bow? Do I kneel? What am I supposed to do? He's here. Right? Even in the natural. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Or do you not revere any man higher than yourself? <laughs> oh, just, just, just the president. It's just the whatever. You know, I'll just finish chewing this enchilada and slap him a high five. Now, there's some times when it's not that way, right? There's a, there's a moment where we give awe and, and reverence and honor where honors do. And, and that's a natural situation. And I've been in some of those places. Uh, one, one was most fun for me, uh, Alan Keyes. You guys know Alan Keyes ran for president a couple of sessions back. And uh, I went down to Riverside to the Mission Inn. We went down, a few of us, and we're going to have lunch with Alan Keyes. He was going to be the keynote speaker, right? And so they got us, if you've ever been to the Mission Inn, they got this big quad area out, in, out inside, the, inside the building and fountains and tables and stuff out there where they serve lunch or whatever. They herded all of us who responded to this luncheon into this big courtyard. And we're kind of like a bunch of cattle in there, sort of standing around, <laughs> waiting to do something. Finally, somebody stands up on this little stair step and says, Ladies and gentlemen, we're ready to serve lunch. Will you please come this way? And he gestures to a door. Well, in the mission inn, they have these doors that are about this wide, old mission doors. They're real skinny. And there's two of them. But for some reason, only one gets opened. I don't know if it's a traffic flow thing they're doing or what, but so you got this herd of us, you know. <laughs> you know, we're all, we're all, that's what it felt like, a bunch of animals, you know, jostling for position, trying to get through this. And you get this doorway, it's just barely big enough for one person, right? So I'm kind of waiting my turn, you know, you're trying to prefer somebody else, but there's 50 behind you, so you can't wait and let everybody go. So you're taking these six-inch half steps, and I get the doors right here. 
right there, right in front of me. I got like, okay, I'm going to be next. And, I, and there's a guy coming from the other side. So I stop briefly, and I look, and it's Alan Keyes. I mean, this guy's running for president. And I go, oh, <laughs> I gesture, you go ahead. I mean, this honors where honors do. I'm not the speaker. You're the speaker. You're the guy running for president. I mean, you may be my next president. Please go ahead. And he goes, no, no, you go. I went, oh, what a dilemma. <laughs> I said, no, I can't, I can't do that. That's just, some people would go, thanks, bud, and walk right through the door. I couldn't do it. I said, no, that, I, that wouldn't be appropriate, sir. He's, and he reached without missing a beat. He reached over and he stuck his arm through my arm. And he said, well, then let's go together. And I said, how can you refuse? I mean, I'm thinking, grand thoughts like now, hey, maybe he's the next president. i got a story to tell. He's not the next president. I still have a story to tell. And, and we squeeze through, and I'm squeezing through this little door with Alan Keyes. And we get through the door, and I think, yeah, who needs lunch? And he was a masterful speaker as well. I really enjoyed that day. But honor was due, right? Now, what would you do if you're jostling for the door and Jesus is there? Huh. Excuse me. Grace says I get to go first. Come on. This, listen, let me be honest with you. Isn't this kind of the attitude of some of, of the church? Like we are so into grace that if the Son of God were standing there, we'd want to plow ahead. What is the fear of God? You're feeling it right now. That's all I'm trying to do is get us to feel it. You'd say, that is inappropriate. The fear of God would say, I do reverence him. I do honor him first. I do put myself down, raise him up. He is the Lord of glory. He is the Lord of hosts. He is God of all. I am not. And on a daily basis, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is our treasure. It is what leads to life. It leads us to understanding John Day has a favorite scripture, John chapter 2, verse 5. You don't have to turn there. Just think of it as the way John Day emphasizes this to us. It rings in my heart. John, thank you for this. Mary and Jesus, they're at the wedding of Canaan, right? And she says, "Uh, son, they're out of wine. He says, mom, it's not my time. She says, okay. But being a good Jewish mother, she walks over to the servants and says, whatever that boy tells you to do, just do it. If he says do something, you just do it. And John brings this exhortation to the church regularly when he can. So whatever God tells you to do, do it. It's that simple. If he says do it, do it. John 14, 15 and 15, 14. There's a good way to remember it. 14, 15 and 15, 14. Jesus says this, if you love me, Keep my commandments. Here's the full version, what it should say. (laughs) How's that? I'm improving on the Bible now. (laughs) Actually, it's a further expansion of the verse. It should read this way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Mm -hmm. Hey, if we love our spouses, we love our kids. Our kids, you love your parents. When you love them, it's easy to obey. It's easy to keep the commandment. It's easy to do it out of love. Jesus says, if you really love me, you will keep my commandments. It'll work. It'll happen. In in 15, 14, he says, you are my friends if you do what I've commanded you. 
That's a big if in there. Just that little two-letter word, but it's a big word. You are my friends. I want to be the friend of Jesus, don't you? I want people to say he's a friend of Jesus. And Jesus is a friend of his or hers. But I got to meet the if qualification. You're my friends if you keep my commandments, if you do what I've commanded you. What did Jesus command us? Hmm? We get it from John the Apostle. It's all in his epistles. He says, friends, I bring you a new commandment from the Lord. Yet it's not a new commandment. It's the same one we've had from the very beginning. Love one another. It goes all the way back and reaches into Deuteronomy 6 and pulls out the great Shema and it's still the same. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. There's no new commandment. There's no list. There are certain things that we know offend God. We shouldn't do those things. We're talking about the principle of Jesus. He said, wide is the gate that leads to destruction. Taking the easy path, doing whatever you want to, anytime you want to, any way you want to, is a great way to go to destruction. But if you want to live the Christian life, you have to understand it's confined. It is confined. It is restricted. It is difficult. It's weird being different than everybody else, isn't it? But I kind of, I like saying, well, I'm happier than they are. I'm more blessed than they are. I mean, I am different. I've got God on my side. I'm on his side. His presence is with me. And even though there's an economic recession or a, a blowout, the whole world structure and everything's scary, take it all away and I've still got Jesus. I've still got heaven as my future. I'm still secure in God loving me. My trust is not here. It's in him. It's not in things. It's in the person of God. Sure glad I got the introduction over with. <laughs> now I'm going to preach. <laughs> Didn't you, how many of you were in the tent meetings with Chris Clock? Didn't you just love it when he said, I'm beginning to close? <laughs> and you knew you had like 45 minutes to an hour coming. And then about the time that would wind off, he'd say, now just give me five more minutes. Will you give me five more minutes? And we were a little reluctant because <laughs> we knew that he counts different than we do. <laughs> and we'd say, go, preacher, and he would. He'd take right off again. Anyway, Psalm 11, 111.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. I find this wonderful in one verse. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I'm talking this morning about the path, the wisdom, knowledge, and blessing. The path, the wisdom, knowledge, and blessing is in the fear of the Lord. And here in this one verse, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs says the beginning of understanding is in 1 verse 7. So that's where it starts. And a good understanding have all they who uh, do his commandments. They're married. They're together. Wisdom, knowledge, joy, keeping his commandments they're they're together one seven proverbs the fear of the lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and instruction chapter 9 verse 10 the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy one is understanding ecclesiastes 12 after we get through all of ecclesiastes when you're reading it you wonder why you are but you finally get to the last chapter 
And you come down to chapter 12, verse 13 and 14, where the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, says, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. All this stuff I just wrote, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. And he says this, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Fear God, keep his commandments. Here's the whole sum of man. That's all we have to do. First John 3, 22 and 4 through 24 says, Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Fear God, keep his commandment. What is that commandment? Love one another. Love God, love one another. If you love God, you'll keep his commandment. Jesus said, if you love me, it'll work. If you don't love me, it won't. If you're just serving me out of duty, or if you're just serving me out because I'm a hard taskmaster, then it's not going to work. But if you love me, if you fall in love with me, obedience will be a byproduct. It'll just work. And fearing me will not be troublesome to you. You'll have all the reverence and awe that you will ever need. Revelation 22:14 says, Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life. Hey, I am looking forward to some fruit off of that tree. Right? It's been hidden for a long time. And we know that it is also symbolic of Jesus as our tree of life. We eat of him, we, we partake of him, and we find life. Jesus wants us to have life and have it to the full, John 10, 10 says. Have abundant life. I cannot have abundant life. I'm coming to this conclusion unless I have his presence. Moses figured it out. I'm not going if you're not going with me. It's going to be pointless. But if you'll go with me, then show me your glory. Well, that might kill you, kid. So I'll give you a little glimpse, and then we'll move on into the promised land. There is coming a day when we'll see him face to face, and we will not be consumed. We will not be killed for our sinful state. We'll be redeemed. We'll have a righteousness of Christ. We'll be ready for his presence, and that's going to be a marvelous day. Amen. Let me conclude reading one psalm. I am closing. <laughs> I really am. Psalm 112, there's lots of places we could go to read. This one just stood out to me. The title of the psalm said, The Blessed State of the Righteous. Praise the Lord, it starts. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. There it is again. Two things married. Fear of the Lord, keeping his commandments. I like these twins. They belong together. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. 
He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. This is all talking about a man, not God. Blessing. The blessed state of the one who starts out. Verse 1. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. I want to encourage you to be obedient kids. Your father loves you to no end. He would never lead you into something that's not good for you. He would never ask you to do something that isn't healthy for you. He would never force you to do something that would be damaging to you. He is going to use you in situations that are going to be uncomfortable. Yes, he's going to cause us to grow. He wants us to mature. We can't stay as we are, right? Anybody want to stay the same? Anybody want to go backwards? No, I've been there, done that, don't want to go back there. I want to grow, I want to prosper, I want to be blessed. So that means new challenges every day and new opportunities to be obedient. Lord, lead us into that. Help us to be so. Father, I do pray that. That you will help us to be obedient children. Lord, give us the peaceful state of knowing we're the kids and you're the dad. And that all this doesn't hinge on us. We're not the old answer. You are. But we are part of the answer. You've desired to be with us. You have concluded that you want your blessing and your presence to be upon us. You want to make us distinctly different in the earth, known as your people because of your presence with us. Lord, I know that your word says in Ephesians 3.10 that you chose through the church to demonstrate the manifold and many-faceted wisdoms of God. So use us. Bring us into it. Help us in the next moment that you ask us to turn left and go in and help the kids. Teach us to just say yes. Whatever it is you ask us to do, help us to be in response as Mary. Whatever he says to do, just do it. And come through, Father, and demonstrate to us your presence, your blessing, your weightiness, and how we should fear you. We love you today in Jesus' name. Amen. I handed this out to the uh, cell leaders. If you didn't get one, there's, there's some more here on the front row. Uh, this is a reminder to welcome all of you that on August the 4th, it's a Wednesday night, 7 p.m. at Cedar Lake. I'm, I'm asking for all the cells to gather in one place at one time and to hear Cheryl Hancock. I want to make this a cell-driven event uh, where we all show up together during the first week of August. It's in the cell notes. Uh, cell leaders, it's there. And uh, this is also going to be page three of your cell notes this week. So when you download that, anybody else want to download it, it's on our, it's on our website. You can go right to the uh, Keeper login page and look for the things. as this week's facilitation guide. You can download the notes for my message today, and, you'll get a, and this will be attached to it if you want it. But cell leaders specifically, start now uh, gearing up how you're going to get your whole cell up there to Cedar Lake, figure out where it's at if you've never been there. And... Uh, we're going to plan to see Cheryl Hancock. She's a journalist in Israel, and she's traveling here in California and sharing her uh, view on what's going on in the, in the Middle East. So we're just going to go and enjoy our company together. Is that all right? Everybody say yes. yes. Okay, obedient children. Thank you. How about you? Have a great day and sing happy birthday all day long, will you?